When I have the opportunity to come and sit at the front and uh, offer teachings, I am always very aware of the, in a way, the privilege of the the position and the really the deep debt of gratitude I owe to the the teachings of the Buddha and all of the teachers who and the practitioners who have carried and shared these teachings down through the through the generations, through the ages. And I feel myself also in touch with what I think it was that first moved me to engage in spiritual practice um, before I even really had any idea of, that there was such a thing as spiritual practice. Certainly hadn't encountered it by that name. And this was very much a sense of care and concern for the well-being of life and a, a sense in myself that having been engaged in different ways and seeking to support and serve the well-being of, uh, of the living world, I, I kind of came to understand that in fact I needed to take care of my own inner world in order to be able to skillfully do so. And uh, sometimes reflected that uh, the Buddha's teachings are a very beautiful invitation to take care of the totality of the world, the inner world and the world around us that arise together as we've observed, as we've reflected on. And within this as we come into a situation of, of practice such as this and after a week of engaging our minds, our bodies, our hearts, I think it's sometimes important for us to, to also to be holding within our perspective the, the larger circumstance of our lives. And for me this is something that feels very natural and not in any way separate from the involvement of the engagement with the inner life. And as followers of the Buddha's teachings of wisdom and compassion, it seems to me the primary invitation and injunction is to, to engage and to address the reality of suffering, of dukkha, by turning towards what is true, turning towards what we see, what we encounter, what we meet, in our very intimate expressions of our inner life and equally in the larger sweep of the world. Turning to what is true even when it's not easy and finding what might be appropriate or skillful, what might be possible in response to this. And so I'd like to speak a little about the situation of our world because I think this is the topic of our practice. And perhaps invite some reflection, some opportunity for considering and contemplating what is perhaps one of the most pivotal times of our human species and our 
civilization. Turning towards that which is not easy is something that our culture has become skillful in avoiding doing. And so acknowledging that, I think we have to be sensitive and careful in how we do this because the world does not always support us to do so. But nonetheless, I think the the heart and the integrity of Dharma teachings and practice do call us in this way. And so I think it's important that we ask ourselves how we respond when we hear in the news of the, the situation of our ecology, of our planetary web of life. When we hear about the unprecedented destabilizing of the climate that's taking place at the moment, the accelerating environmental destruction that's happening around the globe. And we hear about, and sometimes we're subject to, intensifying extreme weather events. We may hear in other parts of the world, or maybe not so far away, about families, communities losing their homes, their food, security, their land, rapid species loss, melting polar ice caps and degrading soil fertility, rivers and lakes poisoned by industrial waste and oceans choking in plastic. And I'm aware as I say that this is not a light thing to name. I don't imagine so many of you are unaware of these things. And yet, because of the very nature of them, they're not easy things to just speak and to name. A friend and student was describing her deep wish to talk with her teenage son about the situation, the ecological circumstance of our world and the climate emergency, and she was really worried about upsetting him. And as she started talking with him about telling him these things, he said, he looked at her, she told me later, he looked at her and said, Mum, I know. <laughs> and there's sometimes a kind of relief when we actually allow what we know to be said and just acknowledged. Particularly when it's something it's not easy to come into contact with, to let ourselves engage with. One of the... Uh, one of the rules that the Buddha established for the monks and nuns of the, the Buddhist order in the Vinaya, the body of, of guidelines for their, for their living, one of the guidelines was to leave a place they visited in at least a good condition as they found it. When visiting someone's home, obviously. As a human community species visiting, it seems, this planet, we could perhaps contemplate the same injunction as the Buddha offered, the Sangha. How do we respond? At an emotional level, of course, a wide range of responses are understandable. Concern, distress, disbelief, confusion, fear, anger. Perhaps despair, hopelessness, perhaps a sense of what can I do? And I think it's important that we speak about these things in our communities amongst 
and with other people who care about life, care about what is true and what is important. And I'd like to speak a little bit about my own response that has, it seems, found or brought me into a new dimension of practice. And in the last, really, nine months, I've found myself drawn to engage with more direct action in the realm of the concern about climate and ecology. And the movement that some of you will be aware of, I imagine, Extinction Rebellion, that uh, began in the UK just over a year ago. And to engage with that organization in nonviolent civil disobedience, which for myself has involved being arrested a number of times for various peaceful activities, just gathering and standing on a bridge together for a day or a week, standing in front of a, a gate while attached to some friends. Or glued to the doors of a hotel voluntarily, again with friends, to blockade a conference of the petroleum industry, who on their agenda were very clearly stating their intention to continue seeking and exploiting further fossil fuel deposits, while making it look like they were going along with the very clear need to address the effect of carbon emissions due to fossil fuels. To seek to bring the attention of our collective community to that which it needs to attend has led me down a pathway I did not imagine I would have taken a year ago. I was with a group of people who poured fake vegan blood, 500 litres of it, outside of Downing Street, which is the equivalent of the White House in the UK, to highlight the danger that our children face, their lives and our grandchildren, if we don't attend to the situation we are in the midst of. And all the actions I've taken have been with groups of like-minded and deeply caring friends. Many of whom are Dharma practitioners. Many of whom are also not. But uh, many of us who didn't come along sort of wearing hats as Dharma practitioners. And I was touched and surprised over the time of my engagement to discover that there were many others who, like myself, had just come as a human being and... uh, Nonetheless, it turned out, had a Dharma practice. To be subject to criminal prosecution is not a comfortable thing. And yet I find myself clearly called through my, my conscience, says, no, you have to act here. And it's clearly more uncomfortable to not do so from where I am in my situation. 
which is one that allows me to do so for many reasons that may not be the same for other people. And there's a way in which I'm at peace with that, even though there may be considerable costs to my life and to my my world, in fact, my personal world. And you may have heard about the Extinction, <coughs> Extinction Rebellion protests in April, the week or ten days of international rebellion that also was taking place in this country. The, uh, the Brooklyn Bridge was occupied for perhaps not quite so long as Waterloo Bridge where I was, where we spent seven days holding the territory of, uh, of protest in the face of a strong police response to remove us. And somehow, it sometimes seems we have to step out of what we know and what is familiar and what is comfortable in the service of what we care the most about, in the service of what we love. And there are many ways, of course, that this can happen and this can look. And I'm offering some of my story here simply to express a version of this. to seek to bring attention to the urgent need for action in the face of an unfolding emergency. You probably are aware again of the report last year from the IPCC, the UN body um, reporting on the issue of climate change. And the report was unequivocal, stating we have just 12 years to avert catastrophic, devastating impacts in our living system, our living ecology, through to temperature rises born of greenhouse gas emissions. I'm not here to talk about the science of it. It's pretty clear. It's also clear that the denial of that has been funded by those who make money from the very activities that are causing the problem. This year, the... uh, 2019, the IPBES, the UN Report on Species, Habitats and Biodiversity, made it really clear that we are losing at an accelerating rate habitats, ecosystems and species to the extent that a thousand species are currently at risk of extinction. And again, I'm not imagining this is news to you. I'm imagining you heard these things. They were in the papers and on the news, usually just for a day or two. And it's a little surprising that they're gone the next day, it seems to me. If someone announced an asteroid was heading for the planet, and it was coming to hit in about 12 years, and it was sort of on the news, and the next news it was back to the Super Bowl or the uh, whatever else was on. We'd go, just a moment, didn't you say yesterday there was an asteroid heading this way? And further research suggests, and this isn't so well known, that in fact the the report of the IPCC is actually massively understating the situation because it's 
It's born of the collected research and data of thousands of reports across all the experts across all the countries of the United Nations, which is a lot. So it takes them three years just to assess and gather all the material based on reports that came out on data older than that. And then they all have to agree on everything they decide, which means it's only reporting the bottom line of report of, of what is agreed. And the statements that some would have made would have been much more stronger. But the statement is we have 12 years to turn around the way our economy and our society and our nations and our world are functioning or else we face catastrophic changes to our climate that we may not survive. Because in fact we're heading at the moment for well over two degrees of temperature rise and at two degrees food security, the ability to grow the grain crops we rely on is gone. It only takes two degrees of change. for the food. It's not the water that's going to get us. And of course we know that in this situation what happens is mass migration due to food scarcity. Some of it's already happening. The Syrian war was precipitated by famine resulting from climate destabilisation in the region and the migrants and the refugees coming from that catastrophic situation are already amongst us. And so some of the reports suggest that human extinction is a 1 in 20 chance. Doesn't sound too bad, does it? You know, it's not bad odds for most things, but as one researcher suggested, would we put our children or our grandchildren on a plane if we knew it had a 1 in 20 chance of coming down? No. We wouldn't. And actually this whole planet, our children and our grandchildren are on the plane. And it may not be a place they can survive on. Not in the long distant future. It seems this is where we find ourselves as a human community today. And so I just want to invite you to take a moment and breathe and just feel. And let yourself in whatever way feels right for you just to acknowledge what it is to sit in the presence of this information, this material. To feel your body sitting on the earth. To feel amongst you the, the warm, soft, breathing bodies of this community, the Sangha. This is Dukkha we're talking about. Dukkha, the Buddha's first noble truth. The inevitability and reality of that which is hard to bear. It's hard to bear. And yet, as Dharma practitioners, we're perhaps better equipped than many to be able to turn towards, to bear this. And there is a cause and an end too, and a path to be found in relationship to this. And again, the IPCC report is clear in terms of the, the need that we can do what we need to do, but it requires immediate, urgent action, and it requires collective awareness and political will which are currently lacking. Just as the Four Noble Truths each have them have associated with them in action, 
The first of dukkha, of suffering, is to be understood. The second of craving, tanha, is to be let go of and abandoned. So too this truth of ecological and climate dukkha calls for action, calls for a response. And it seems to me that we are collectively addicted. It's a really useful metaphor, I find. Our whole social structure, our community, our species is collectively addicted to a way of living dependent upon something that's self-destructive. It's like the doctors have told us, if you keep doing that, that thing that you're doing, it's going to kill you. But we're still doing it. That's addiction. That's addiction. It's not just ourselves, of course, but the whole ecology of which we are part. Our greater self, we could say. And somehow we don't quite seem to have the ability yet to stop or to turn around. And there's a, a need for some honesty with this, it seems to me. No. Wow. This is serious. And a humility, in fact. And this is part of what's understood to be skillful in, in the recovery world, where there's a great wisdom in working with addiction. The, the humility to realize that actually we can't do this the way we're doing it. It's not working current responses have failed. The calls to government and industry to change direction are not being heard. And emissions are rising. Global temperatures are continuing to rise. And we've known about this a long time. Since the 60s. Since the 90s we've all known about it. Some people have known about it since the 60s. And so what does it mean to to again respond to this. What does it mean? It seems to me that the climate and ecological crisis is at its heart a crisis of spirit. A crisis of disconnection born of failing to see our sacred and inseparable interconnection with everything and our dependence upon everything. Everything that we've mistakenly conceived of and related to as other or as over there or somewhere else, or something, or someone we do not need to care about. There is nowhere else. There's no somewhere else. What's really interesting is the idea that you can throw something away. Actually, there's no possibility for that. There's only here. And although it might take a little time, what we're seeing now clearly is whatever got thrown away comes back. And the plastic that's in the ocean is also in our friends and ourselves, the creatures of this world and our own bodies. What we have not valued equally as ourselves is not apart from ourselves here. And this is part of the wisdom and the teaching of karma. We cannot do something and imagine it only has a ripple that goes one direction. Whatever ripples go out, come back. And this is something collective. This is something collective. It's not an individual phenomena here. And it seems to me that our current trajectory of collective self-harm calls for the love and concern in our hearts to be given. Courageous expression.
I'd never been engaged in a, a mass ongoing act of civil disobedience as took place in the April Rebellion. It was sort of like over a series of months and different activities, it's kind of interesting how what you take to be normal, acceptable and possible changes. And Starting off with just the very idea of standing on the road and saying, I won't leave even if the police tell you to. And then, I tell you, the first time someone suggested I glue myself to something, I thought, no way. That sounds like a really stupid idea. And a few months later I found myself with a group of people wanting to actually give a message to the industry that's at the heart, or one of the central industries at the heart of this issue, the petroleum industry. And it's very interesting to glue your hand to a window or to a door. You do it like this usually. You can do it like this, but usually like this. I don't know if any of you have ever seen this image before. <laughs> like the Buddha out there. It's known as the fearless mudra, abhaya mudra. It's the soft part of your hand. It's not aggressive. It means stop. It says stop. And it's firm and strong, but it's not actually harming or helpful. But if it needs to, it can say no or stop or back off. And I think I've talked about it and probably shared it with some of you here over the years. It's an interesting mudra. And it's the Buddha's expression of that courageous compassion that is described as the protective, the fierce protective quality of the mother or the parent who's standing at the door of the room in which her child is would meet someone coming to harm the child and say, no way are you coming through that door. Nothing personal, but no way are you coming through that door with the intention or the wish to hurt my child. And this is compassion in its fierce, courageous aspect. So the fearless mudra, I think, can also translate usefully as courageous. It wasn't easy to live on a bridge with no water source and no toilets for a week and what turned out to be a really hot um, hot week in, in April. Nights were cold, days were sweltering. There wasn't a lot of capacity to sleep. The police came again and again to try and remove us and every time there were more of us to be removed than there were enough of them to remove us. So we were still there day after day. And there was an amazing sense of connection that arises with a group of people who do something really difficult by choice out of a sense of something greater that they care about. And it reminded me profoundly of what it's like to sit at a retreat with a group of people and spend a week where you choose not to move even though it hurts or it's uncomfortable or it's difficult or it's frustrating or scary. And you actually feel deeply connected to the people you do that with even though you don't really know them. All you know is that they've got something in their heart that says to them, I'm going to do this. And the, uh, the church at one end of the bridge, the dear Father Giles, uh, offered us the use of his toilets in one small kitchen in the crypt. So we had a little bit of amenity and support. And somewhere to sleep for those who are on the night shift and up during the night, needing somewhere to go during the day.
When we hear something as clear and overwhelming as the scientific consensus calling for urgent and uncompromising action to save our children and their children and the creatures and the plants and the trees and the rivers and the mountains and the oceans of our world, the communities of life and this fabric of existence as we know it on this planet at this time to save it from devastation. And we see this call being disregarded, denied or ignored in the pursuit of profit, convenience and consumption. This is hard to see. It's hard to see ourselves also, to see oneself and realize, oh, perhaps I could do more and sometimes I find I can't. There are things I make, choices I make that I find I'm not sure I feel all right with. And yet I feel unable to choose otherwise sometimes. I think this happens for all of us. Understanding in our wishes and intentions to refrain from causing harm in terms of the precepts, of course, no one does this perfectly. And it's really important to let ourselves feel what happens for us in contemplating the situation, I think. The unwillingness to let ourselves feel means we can't really engage with it. And the Dharma teachings ask us to turn towards the painful, this painful contemplation, to open to what we feel, to fear, to grief, anger, horror, denial, numbness, skepticism. Maybe it's not going to happen. Maybe it's not real. Confusion. Like, how could this be? And more. As we contemplate the actions of those who seek material wealth and gain from harmful and destructive activities, and equally our own limitations in being able to change the way we live, it's so important, and this is central if we look and understand the Dharma teachings, that we do not identify with or act on anger, blame or judgment towards ourselves or others in this situation. It's just not helpful. It's completely understandable, but it's entirely not helpful. One of the principles of Extinction Rebellion is a, is a, a movement which is uh, reasonably decentralized is not blaming and shaming anyone, that it's a systemic issue and that individuals might have functions and roles within it, both as part of the problem and part of the solution, but that we judge no one. And when I first saw that, I thought, well, that's, that's impressive. That's a really useful understanding, but cannot... Are people really able to do that? And I was deeply touched. And part of my deepening trust in the movement as I slowly explored my way into it was realizing, oh, actually they're not just saying that because it's a good idea. Actually there's people in this movement who know what that means because it requires practice. And of course it turned out, as I said, there's a few for whom their practice was in a Dharma context, but also others whose practice came from other contexts. But there was a spiritual wisdom in it. And this... This is something really important here because it's a kind of, again, it's another place where engaging is blocked. One, one blockage is that just turning towards the, the tragedy or the painfulness or the scariness. But the movement, the, the way that we might find ourselves angry towards others or judgmental towards ourselves, is, it's really important to know that in this acknowledging feeling and finding seeking support from others, doing it with each other, not by ourselves. is really essential in a situation such as this. And 
taking real care to attend to what brings us nourishment, to what brings us uplift, what sustains and supports our hearts, so that we're not just turning towards what is difficult and challenging, but that we have permission, we understand the wisdom of balance, the wisdom that says, yes, I need to acknowledge this, but I also need to include time to walk quietly on the earth, or to look at the stars, or to lean up against a tree. And just kind of do nothing for a little while. As a support for finding what our hearts ask of us. Where our love and our care and our concern would invite us to go. To respond to the situation. Perhaps to demand effective action from the leaders of our countries and our world. And to make the changes that we can that we're able to individually. The way our culture has developed in the last, certainly, um, 40 years, and it's been on this trajectory for longer, is a very strong emphasis on individual um, action and responsibility. And it's very easy to feel that it's an individualized problem. But this is way beyond that. This is way beyond that. If we heard that there was an asteroid heading towards us, going to hit us in 12 years, and everyone said, oh gosh, I haven't quite finished building my concrete bunker. I better work on that a bit harder. You know, or maybe I'll practice sort of dodging, sort of like, you know, and see if, I, that, you know, if we all dodge left, you know, maybe it'll help. No, clearly not. A situation of this urgency requires the centralized, coordinated action of governments and states. Because that's the institution and the organization we create to take action in these situations. And I think that's important to hold because it's easy sometimes to feel, and I feel this at times, sorrow and grief and and the pain of, gosh, I still do things that contribute to this. I'm still part of this. We are part of it. We're all part of it. But again, understanding addiction systemically, collectively, or addicted to something toxic. It's an expression of the materialistic orientation of our culture that puts material security and comfort ahead of spiritual well-being. And the cost is being ultimately paid collectively, but of course, first and most initially strongly and tragically by those who have the least economic and material resources and who had the least to do with the impact that's to producing the impact that's currently happening. Not actually going to... Sometimes, but will it happen is the question you hear. I wonder if it's going to happen. It's already happening. It's already happening. Exactly how far it goes down the tracks it could go is yet unsure. When we sat together on the bridge, it was very interesting as the sometimes dozens and even hundreds of police would come towards us and we'd just sit there. The intention to be peaceful, to be friendly, to speak kindly, to not treat them as doing other than their job, which they are doing, and respect them for that. We noticed initially the tendency was to kind of sort of kind of go into a bracing in a sort of a slightly confrontational mode with them. 
And over time, we actually we, we, we named the line where this took place, where people sat. We called it the front line. And then we realized after a little while, actually, that's a military metaphor, even though it feels like that kind of confrontation. And we renamed it the heart line. Because it was like, this is the place where people are exposing a vulnerability, taking a risk with their comfort, their liberty, their economics, and the impact of what might happen if one is arrested. And young people, elders, people in between, people from all walks of life, those who felt they could, chose to sit there in solidarity with each other. The police were instructed by frustrated politicians and media leaders you know, to use the full force of the law against these people who were sitting peacefully on the road, on the bridge, and elsewhere in London at the time. And yet somehow the solidarity of sitting there with others, just as when we sit together in meditation, the solidarity of sitting there with others gives us a capacity to stay in a situation we might not stay if we were there by ourselves. And as the police would come, sometimes we would be chanting different things, and one of the chants was, police, I won't sing it, Um, police, we love you, we're doing this for your children too. And it was really powerful and beautiful, and some, not all, but they were affected, they were touched. Nonviolent civil disobedience gives ordinary people a voice that can't be ignored and can't be dismissed. It's really interesting. So much of the despair that I've felt and the sense of disempowerment and hopelessness and that maybe many of you have also felt, I don't know, in the face of it seems like intractable problems that are obviously there needing to be addressed and yet responses are not coming. There can be a million people marching on the street from one place to another and it makes news for a day and then the next day it's forgotten. When you stop and sit down, suddenly everything changes. It's really interesting. It's really interesting and uh, fascinating, in fact. Because of the disruption that's created, it gets people's attention, even if they're not happy to begin with. It's like disrupting the normality and then actually people start talking about why they're being disrupted. The conversation moves from how annoying it is. And of course, people wonder about why. Is it okay? We always had the agreement that if any ambulance or emergency vehicle came to our our blockades, we would let them through. But they knew we were there. We told them in advance. It's not like we did it in secret. We told them we're going to do this. Just there's too many of them, too many of us for them to stop us doing it. So there's concerns, there's questions one might raise about is it okay to cause disruption? And yet, sometimes it seems to me, when we create a retreat situation, we're creating a situation which disrupts us from our normal habitual functioning. It takes us out of the normal ways we stay asleep by putting some boundaries in there, saying, no, I won't cross that. I'll stay here. I'll not indulge in my devices or other entertainments. I'll stay here for 40 minutes, even if my knees have said that's long enough. Okay, I'll straighten my leg out, but I'm still going to stay here. Something about those kind of commitments opens us up. And it happens collectively too. Interesting. Nonviolent civil disobedience has a real track record for bringing about change in intractable situations. And the, uh, the American civil rights movement is 
I'm sure you all know well, inspired by Rosa Parks and Martin Luther, Luther King's leadership, the willingness to sacrifice one's own comfort, ease, and even liberty for a collective well-being, not for personal gain. The Indian independence movement led by Gandhi. And again, that willingness to sit, and initially in that situation, for some of them in the front of the guns of the the British colonial army that were used, but very quickly an army finds it cannot attack people sitting peacefully. The police were a little bit frustrated with us, I heard from some of them as we chatted on the way to the police stations, um, where they took me a few times, because they said, you know, well, we can't use the riot squad because you're all sitting there peacefully. If you were violent, then we'd have cleared you in no time. Because <laughs> they could have come in with force. But if they use force on peaceful people, all those people's friends and colleagues and relatives and everyone who knows them and everyone who sees, even if they weren't really on their side, very quickly join them. That's a known thing. There's research that shows this actually is effective. And again, it, it seems like practice for me. Very interesting. I was arrested over that week four times. And on every time, once we'd kind of done the business, which is I'm sitting here and I'm not moving, they're coming saying you've got to move, and at some point it takes usually several of them to pick you up and carry you away. And you let them do that because it wears them out, and so they go more slowly and they take less of you And you know, um, if, you, if you just make them have to carry you. You don't have to do that. But what happens as soon as we've done that business and they've done their thing, you're arrested, you're in the van, then you actually talk with them. And they're not used to people who are interested to engage and caring. And and like they're used to people who spit at them and hate them and try and hit them. And really interesting, the connections and conversations and the sense of, oh, yeah, they're they're concerned too. They're concerned too. They have children too. They have some sense of what's going on. And people are touched, police officers, bystanders who might not be interested in the topic or concerned about the issue or particularly happy about the disruption, but seeing people peacefully and kindly and caringly make a sacrifice. Something very powerful. (coughs) And it seems to me that if our spirituality genuinely values the sacredness of all of living things, all of life, then perhaps we are asked to prioritize the collective well-being over personal gain and advantage. This is perhaps not such an outrageous or original revelation. But to let go of our personal comfort and convenience, to take risks with our privilege, our liberty maybe, in the service of our shared common interest. It may be something we feel as a sacred duty. It's not that I'm suggesting that it needs to look the way it looks for me, for anyone else. My situation is particular, as all of ours are. And I'm in many ways fortunate to not be responsible to or for really anyone in my life. And there's something really amazing that happens 
in terms of spiritual well-being, when we see the real truth of what happens when we are less attached to our particular personal material and even psychological comfort because it's it's not just physically uncomfortable, it's psychologically uncomfortable. Although it's interesting how well trained I felt for the activity. (laughs) Really, I... It means sitting somewhere and not moving for hours. <laughs> Even when it gets uncomfortable. Where have I done that before? It means sometimes getting locked in a small room with a, t- with a, with a, with a bed and a ensuite bathroom and being left on your own for 24 hours. <laughs> and I know for some of, the, some of the people that was really difficult. For me it was like, I get a day of retreat. <laughs> I don't mean to mean make it a joke, although it in one sense was humorous, and I even, I'm not much of a chanter, but just sort of chanting in the space, thinking, oh, wow, how much distress, how much anger, how much fear, how much confusion has been felt in the space of this police cell? How much deep, deep suffering has been playing out through the life of someone who's been brought here? And just thinking, can I just be here in a way that's bringing something else into the space. Can I smile at the officers who come and offer me the kind of sort of dodgy microwaved vegetarian chili beans that <laughs> seems to be the only thing they have in all the different police stations. But it's food and it's hot. And say thank you and eat it. Martin Luther King observed, he said, Never be afraid to do what is right. Society's punishments are small compared to the wounds we inflict on our soul when we look the other way. And as I said, I I cannot know, I don't know what you or anyone should do. But I would invite you to contemplate your own sense of what you care about what you are concerned with what you might wish to explore and to inform yourself and listen to your heart in this to see what your course of action may be some of my Dharma friends came and just sat in meditation amongst those of us who were sitting on the heart line in anticipation of arrest and When the police came, they got up and moved on. But while they were there, just bringing that sense of peace and quiet, bearing witness. And for everyone who's sitting there, willing to be arrested, there's someone else who's hanging around, making sure they've got food, making sure they've got water, scratching their nose if they've glued themselves to something and can't scratch their nose. And, you know, you sort of think, someone scratch. Have you ever asked someone to scratch your nose? They don't scratch the right place. No, over there, over there. Okay, stick something by my nose so I can scratch it. It's really interesting. It's really interesting. And again, that sense of, oh, you do this together. Like a firefighter who goes into a burning building. That's just one part of the fire service. The person who drives the fire engine, the person who fills in the form to make sure that they've all got the right jackets and requisitions the equipment. All of those people are needed. And of course, the image is useful, isn't it? Because if you were coming up to a building and it was burning and there were children in it, you wouldn't think twice before knocking down the door. That's In other conditions, that's criminal damage. 
or trespass. But no, no, not in this situation. You also probably wouldn't think twice about just pushing some people out of the way who were just watching while the house was burning and the children were still inside. You'd just go, get out of my way. There are so many different ways we can express our care and our concern. In this realm of mutual interdependence, our intentional actions do not guarantee outcomes. There are no certainties as to where anything we choose to do or where our whole collective human activity will take us. But I have a deep confidence that it always makes a difference. That we face not just the danger of threat to our living ecosystems and our species and our ecology, but there's a spiritual threat that we face which is what it is to live in the shrunkenness of turning away or not being willing to do whatever it is we might be able to do. And also the danger of not making space for and understanding and forgiving ourselves for whatever we cannot do, what seems to be beyond us, whether personally or collectively. Because we don't know where this will go and how this will play out. There are no certainties here. And I was struck on the bridge as we spent this time there over the week how there was this incredibly deep sense that built over the time of heartfelt love and peace and goodness. And even when we were finally all cleared away, when they finally managed to take us all off, There was the sense of something beautiful that we were all left with. And still, of course, there's the challenges of what that involves, of having to face court procedures and the risks that involves. But really interestingly, in the course of the week, the public discourse shifted profoundly from a bunch of bloody troublemakers, what are they doing in the newspapers, to... Whoa, just a moment, serious problem. Yeah, it's now in the UK a subject for conversation where it was not. You can talk about it now. The climate emergency, the ecological emergency, it's that urgent. And the government, or in fact the the United Kingdom um, Parliament, the Commons as it's called, the, the members of Parliament passed a motion acknowledging that this is an emergency. The, uh, the current um, Prime Minister, Theresa May, committed the UK to becoming carbon neutral by 2050, which isn't early enough, but it's a lot better than where it was going before. Or not carbon neutral, but net emissions neutral, net carbon neutral, which means not that there will be no um, greenhouse gas emissions, but they'll be offset by whatever other ways they can be neutralised. Here, just yesterday, I heard, and wonderfully, beautifully, that um, some, uh, a climate emergency fund was being established by wealthy philanthropists, um, uh, one of the, the heir of the, the Getty fortune and of the Kennedy fortune, or one of the heirs of those two, putting out £500,000 to support, amongst other things, well, two or three different movements, including Extinction Rebellion, which is like this bunch of troublemakers. So, oh, just a moment, something shifted here. 
and um, and there's a climate emergency emotion in front of the uh, House of uh, not okay they I'm not sure the Congress um, sponsored by perhaps not surprising the Bernie Sanders and uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez but that wasn't there a few days ago and and another senator whose name I don't remember. There are many different pathways we can choose in life and many different options or calls we may find ourselves moved to express. By speaking about the pathway that I find myself on, I really just want to share that as one expression. I want to be really clear, and I hope it's clear. that That's not saying that's what people are supposed to do. But some people may be moved to. One friend of mine told me about her sister who's not well, who just makes, she can't really leave the house. She's really not well. But she makes artwork. And she's so happy to be part of the movement. We're just making artwork. There's always a way we can engage, if we feel moved to do so, with a situation of concern. And uh, I'd like to read you a poem. I find it profoundly touching and moving that uh, came from a conversation with a friend of um, mine and my wife, Catherine, who teaches here, also some of you will know, Um, and a friend of ours who's a poet. And uh, we were talking about the the phrase that uh, Gail Bradbrook, one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion, used when she talked about considering for ourselves what it might mean to be a good ancestor. A really interesting concept, what it is to be a good ancestor. So I'd like to read you this poem that my friend wrote following that. It's entitled The Good Ancestor. He says, Every day I walk a hundred years to the hill where my great-great-granddaughter sits. I carry words of blessing and reach to touch her back. But feeling me near, she turns, sad-eyed and heavy with grief. What was it like, she asks, When the great whales swam, when the birds sang you awake, when the rains came soft and the soil smelled sweet underfoot, and the blessings catch in my throat. On darker days she turns her famished face, charred and eyes sunk in their bony orbits burn with curses, and the blessings froth at my mouth with the poisonous spoon of betrayal. On the darkest of all days, I walk the hundred years and find no one there. Let today be the bright day. Let today be the bright day. I lay my hand upon her back and feeling me there, she turns and blesses me, saying, Your love was fierce enough, sweet ancestor. Your love was fierce enough. Every day I walk a hundred years to the hill where my great-great-granddaughter sits. I carry words of blessing and reach to touch her back. Let today be the bright day. Let today be the bright day I lay my hand upon her back and feeling me there, she turns and blesses me, saying, Your love was fierce enough, sweet ancestor. Your love was fierce enough. Never click it.
Et on sera. So I'd like to invite you to just breathe a moment. To remember the future is always uncertain. That our life always has something to offer. And that our practice, our spiritual practice, is a foundation for meeting what comes with an open heart. It's so important in this situation that we all cultivate the boundless dimensions, the Brahma-viharas, to deepen in loving-kindness, to find ways to act with courage and compassion to make a real practice of acknowledging and appreciating all that is fortunate, beautiful, precious and uplifting to the heart. And bowing to the natural, lawful and unstoppable unfoldment of life with equanimity, kindness, compassion, joy, equanimity. These are what we need to bring to bear with the courage to turn towards and the wisdom to see clearly our circumstance as human beings, of course. We are not here forever. Neither are our children or theirs or the other creatures we share this world. Of course, even this vast living ecosystem was never going to be here forever. If nothing else, at some point, the the sun itself will run out of energy to keep doing what it does and it'll go cold or possibly go hot and either way this place won't be home for humans and other soft warm-blooded creatures at that time and that might be what we think of the natural lifespan but we know that we don't all get to live the natural human lifespan it's not about how long we're here once we understand the truth of mortality once we contemplate this reality, personally, collectively, globally. It's not about how long we live. It's about how we live. This is, I think, the question. That spiritual practice is an invitation, a support, and a guide to exploring. As Leonard Cohen said in Boogie Street... And so, my friends, be not afraid. We are so lightly here. It is in love that we are made. In love we disappear. This life is not less sacred for being so fragile. And is it not still inexplicable, remarkable and blessed that we are here at all? Can we sit together for a few moments?
So may we all in our practice and in our lives find the connection and companionship with each other and our world that enables us to to meet where we are inside ourselves and together. To find our own response of heart and mind and body in contributing to the well-being, to the safety, to the preservation, the protection and the continuance of, of wisdom, of kindness, of life in all its forms. And may we be held in the sacred and blessed Dharma that that is just this right now, right here. And equally, everything and everywhere. For our well-being and for the welfare, the well-being of all that lives. So thank you for your presence here, for your practice and for the goodness of your hearts and your lives. Please continue in your practice.